0: this is teaming with ideas the podcast that explores how people at work work together i'm carlos de Pena, your host and i spent decades working with teams as well as researching writing and speaking about collaboration over the years i've met some brilliant people who share my passion for collaboration in teaming with ideas i'll be speaking with these experts so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding enjoy Welcome back to Teaming with Ideas with Tim Creed. Tim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Carlos. Thanks for having me.
0: I met Tim at Mars, and Tim has since moved on and is doing some very exciting stuff. Tim, first, why don't you tell my brilliant listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm an Australian by background. I'm a a native Australian, although with the accent you'll probably pick up, it's a bit of a mutt accent. I've spent the last 10 years officially living in the US, but a handful of years prior to that in other parts of the world. So... I guess taking a step back, I was uh, was born in Sydney to Australian parents, but we quickly moved from Sydney to London when I was about two. Spent a few years in London. My sister was born there. From London, we moved to New York and uh, spent about six years in in just outside of New York City, where my dad was working for Unilever at the time. And then we uh, made our way back to Australia. Spent sort of the rest of my I call it childhood and teenage years in Australia. But at the age of fifteen, I kind of reached a pretty pivotal point where. My dad had a career opportunity again back in the US and at 15, I was halfway through high school and the obvious question to me was, was I willing to pack up and move from Sydney at the time to the US? And I was pretty adamant about not doing that. Um, I was pretty committed to my friends in Australia and finishing high school in Australia. And so sure enough, you know, dad sort of made the quick decision, that's all right, we'll stay and I'll keep doing my current role. And I gave it some thought for a little while. I was actually fortunate. I was at a at a private boys' school. The school had a boarding facility for about 10% of the students, uh, most of whom came from the country, uh, rural parts of Australia. After giving it a couple of weeks' thought, I said to my dad and my mom that I really wanted him to take the career opportunity. And at the same time, for me, it was actually an opportunity to kind of stay in Australia and, and take the boarding school route, which was a tough family decision, but we we all considered it for a while ultimately made that decision where I stayed in Australia and my parents moved off to the U.S. with my sister, who's a few years younger than me. Sort of that's how things panned out. I finished high school and went to university in Australia, joined Mars, which is obviously a great company, as you know, spent sort of the early parts of my years with Mars in, in HR in Australia, working at a couple of the factory environments, which was outstanding opportunities. Um, I was given the great fortune uh, through someone I worked closely with to take an opportunity to, to join one of the new ventures in the U.S. at that time. This is about a decade ago now. That's what brought me to Nashville, Tennessee, was uh, an opportunity with Mars uh, 10 years ago in the HR space. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the, the great things about Mars is the opportunity to kind of jump around the business and, and get some really broad business experience. While my early experience was in HR, I then gravitated across into sales, took on a, a sales team lead role on the West Coast of the US for a few years, and then eventually made my way back to Nashville where my now wife, my then girlfriend... Is from, and we decided to settle back down in, in Nashville. And fast forward to where we are now, we've got a little baby boy, eighteen months old, and and I've shifted gears from Mars over the last couple of years to recently working for Bridgestone. That's the life and career in a bit of a nutshell.
0: So, how much time did you spend in sales?
1: It's a good question. I I, I spent three years in what would be considered traditional sales, selling to brick and mortar retail customers. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had a team of ten reps that worked underneath me on the West Coast, but then. I was lucky to jump into the e-commerce space, which is sort of a debate whether that's a really a sales role or a marketing role or some hybrid. And mm-hmm. while it officially sat in the sales organization at Mars, it's a little bit more broad than that. So I would say really I've spent the last seven or eight years in sales in some form or fashion, albeit the last five or six years have been in the digital space.
0: So interesting jump from HR to sales, not the other way around, which is, often happens.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm in Nashville working for Bridgestone. I joined Bridgestone about okay. 18 months ago now, which is quite a shift in industry and in and culture and, and all the rest.
0: So many of the folks I interview here are folks I know well and have met at Mars. So my, my, my brilliant listeners must think we're hawking Mars as a place to work. We're really not. It, <laughs> it's a great place to work. Uh, It just happens to be that some of the finest minds I know, some of the best people I've met, I met during my 18 years there. So hence the density of of Martians and ex-Martians on this this podcast. (laughs) So Tim, I want you to think back to the first time you led a
1: team. How long? do Do you remember when that was? Yeah, it was about seven or eight years ago now. That was the role that I took on when I jumped out of HR and into sales. It was a shift, obviously, in function from HR to sales. It was a shift probably more dramatically from individual contributor to team leader. and then geographically as well, actually my wife and I got married about three months before that, that job opportunity. So we had just got married in Nashville and then packed up and left for Northern California. Oh wow, really? So we had a lot going on, a lot of changes going on for sure.
0: In your background, did you play any sports? Were you a member of any clubs in high school or college where you would have been a part of a, of a team in those settings?
1: Yeah, I played rugby, cricket, a bit of soccer, golf. My, my biggest passions were rugby and cricket, which are obviously pretty prominent sports in Australia, not so much in the US. But
0: You didn't play Aussie rules football, huh?
1: The landscape in Australia is, is not dissimilar to say like ice hockey in North America, where it's it's kind of where you grow up, what's sort of around you, right? Where hockey is obviously big in Canada and northern parts of the mm-hmm. US, but not as popular in the, in the South or the, or the West Coast. For whatever reason, rugby is popular on the east and northern parts of Australia, whereas Aussie rules is really popular in, in the western parts and southern parts of the country. So I grew up in Sydney, which is considered sort of the east. Like I said, I went to a private boys school. It was a big breeding ground for rugby players. That was what I grew up in. But I say it's funny because when I moved to Nashville, of all places in the world, you wouldn't think that that would be the first place I would play Aussie rules. But Nashville actually has a Aussie rules team, which I joined 10 years ago when I moved to town. And uh helped build that team out. So I was getting my first real experience playing the game in a country which obviously is not not so aware of that of that sport.
0: <laughs> I want to take a little bit of a tangent here. If, if for my <laughs> listeners who've never seen Australian rules football, I think there are probably about forty nine players on the field at any given moment. It's just a lot of people. Isn't it like eighteen though per team?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty packed. Although the average field is more than twice the size of an American football field. So. Yes, there's a lot of players, but uh, I'll tell you from experience, it's a lot of running. You'll probably not find a sport that has truly better athletes, all around athletes with stamina, strength. Hmm. Uh, longevity, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing sport.
0: When the network ESPN first came on the air, <laughs> one of the only things they actually had the rights to show was Australian rules football. <laughs> <laughs> like, I had no idea what I was seeing, and nor did I have an Australian around to explain it to me. <laughs> I asked you that because I like to talk to folks about what they've learned about teams and teamwork through the course of their careers. And mm-hmm. um, while I'm not a big fan of sports analogies, I think we do learn a lot by the ways we're asked to collaborate in the various things outside of work we may participate in. But let's go back to your first role as a leader. It was the move into
1: the field sales role.
0: And not you're changing, as you said, both functions and going from individual contributor to a team leader. Mm-hmm. What do you remember in terms of your learning curve when you did that?
1: It was extremely steep for a number of reasons. You know, I felt on the one hand that, as you mentioned, the move from HR to sales is a pretty uncommon one. I was pretty aware that our organization at the time had a point of view about HR, which was at times positive, but also at times quite negative in the sense of they probably felt like HR was often sort of driving a business agenda that had repercussions for them. And so I was pretty mindful of that going in and and trying to think through how do I make this shift, a genuine shift, which it was, but a shift that didn't come across like I'm, I'm here as sort of a um, a spy from the organization in any way, or or uh, trying to trying to bring my HR experiences to a world that they probably weren't used to seeing every day, right? That was on my mind for sure. Just to give some context on the team, the team was a team of 10 sales reps, pretty much all of them with, with significant experience. Um, aside from one, one relatively young guy who was probably two or three years out of college, but the other nine were 20 plus a year, 30 plus a year sales veterans. And most of them actually had spent that amount of time with the company. So a lot of longevity, a lot of experience. And I felt quite humbled to jump into that and recognize that I clearly didn't have the functional expertise or the experiences that they had. In a lot of ways, it was confronting to figure out how do I step in and figure out where I'm really going to help? How do I sort of create a mark as a leader, given I'm making all these shifts? Those are sort of the backgrounds of the people on the team. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you know, to, to your question, it was Generally, it was a very big learning curve in those first you know, handful of months, for sure.
0: That's daunting. Nine people who have more experience than you, a whole new function. What did
1: you do to get up to speed? I reflected back actually on my very first job at Mars, which was in a factory environment in Australia. It was at the Bathurst Factory, which is a really small town about two or three hours west of Sydney, a factory where we produced dog food. I wasn't a team lead, obviously, at that time. I was I was in an HR support role. The majority of the workforce there were obviously working on the manufacturing floor. Their priority was having a a solid, safe day of work, making money to provide for their family, really fundamental stuff. My lessons from that experience were they just wanted to be heard. They wanted people around them, especially the corporate associates, to really spend time just just making connections. And I, I took a lot out of that experience and tried to play it into that shift I made when I was becoming a team lead for sales it took me a while to recognize I didn't have to try and be an expert in any way or prove functional worth. In fact, if anything, it was more about teasing out and bringing out the capabilities of the team. And that's so that's how I approached it was I spent really solid time the first three or four months with each of the team members out on the road, spending time in the car with them, driving around, doing sales calls, really taking a back seat observing them, getting to know them, and vice versa, helping them to get to know me. So we really just built a relationship first and foremost. Um, And it wasn't so much about having to make a mark in terms of what are my functional expectations of them. It was really a chance to learn and, and let them kind of take the front seat, probably the biggest lesson of all. How long were you in that role? All in about two and a half, three years. And how long did it take for you to win over the team? Some team members quicker than others um you know i'd say probably half the team it was a matter of weeks or months and for maybe two or three team members in particular it was the good part of a year 18 months to really truly get that level of trust i guess you know with with each other and there's plenty of reasons for it some of them are certainly my own approach and having to adapt my approach to to those couple of people in particular very different styles and backgrounds on their ends but also just understanding the, the history they had been through I'd, This was also a um, group of teammates that had spent a number of years working for a couple of brands that Mars had acquired. And so they had worked in a very distinctly different culture for a large part of their career. And then when Mars took over the business, they felt quite a dramatic shift. And I think despite all the great efforts of the business, they were lost along the way. And I think that was part of it, right? I I came in as a Martian in their eyes, a a long-term Mars associate. And I think there was always a level of skepticism for a few of them just based on their own experiences and their change journey through all that acquisition. What I learned is you've got to acknowledge that some people change does take more time. And even if you think you've got a solid approach where you're really trying to build the same level of respect and understanding for each member of your team, some people just take longer to to get there than others.
0: So that's another complexity in this, isn't it? The fact that this was a fairly recently acquired piece of the pet care portfolio And they were going through a cultural adjustment. I'm I'm picturing you in this job, Tim, and I'm thinking there are just potholes, all kinds of opportunities to trip up. Do you remember any notable misstep you made from which you learned a lesson about managing people and leading?
1: There's one that really stands out, which is there was 10 roles on the team, 10 sales positions. And when I joined, one of those positions was open. Someone had recently retired, so we had an open sales position in Northern California. At least I gave it a few weeks to, to feel the urgency to fill the job, but I, but I was feeling pressure to fill the role because with one person out, other members of the team have to pick up the slack. They have to cover that territory. They have to meet more customers than they normally would. And so there was definitely some, some urgency to get that job filled. I, in my sort of first couple of weeks, had assessed that the team had tremendous experience and longevity with, with the organization. But I felt like there was called a lack of diversity in terms of thoughts coming into the team that would probably be best fit from outside the industry, because probably eight of the nine members of the team had been spending a long time in the pet industry. One was a couple of years out of college. But I felt like there was sort of a a myopic thinking within the team that everything had to be done the way it was done in the pet industry for so long. And so I kind of made the choice in my head that when I was going to fill this role externally, I would go outside the industry and look for someone with a different set of experiences than probably traditional sales reps would have had. The problem I had was I filled the job so quickly and brought in someone that I thought checked those boxes. And I really didn't do a thorough assessment of how they were going to integrate with the team and and when they were under pressure, how they would really behave. That person just became a real misfit. So with good intent, but really bad execution on my end, it created a real issue. Where there was friction between that person and a number of the legacy team members. They obviously, in a lot of ways, probably thought, well, this guy came from HR and should know how to recruit people pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) And first job of recruiting as a team lead was really the wrong decision. That was a really big lesson and not jumping to conclusions in terms of what you think has to take place. Right. But more importantly, really take the time to hire for fit, to hire for true learning agility. It's not so much the background experiences that matter, it's more the ability to be agile in whatever environment that you're in and trying to create as a team. And that was my lesson. So we sort of had to, unfortunately, take some time to move on through that process of exiting that person from the business. And eventually, we made a great hire after that. But that was definitely a big lesson in terms of probably putting us back as a team.
0: Obviously, the team wasn't feeling great about this, to understate the matter. (laughs) I would imagine there was probably some frustration, maybe even some resentment. Yep. Um, Just to get a sense of scale, how long was it before you were able to manage the person out of that role?
1: It was about five months, I'd say, from when they first came on to when eventually they left.
0: Oh, happened pretty quickly then. How did you deal with the team on this one, Tim? How honest were you with them about realizing you'd made a misstep? How much did you take time to listen to them? Talk to me about how you worked through it with the team.
1: To be candid, the impact was much more on a couple of people that had territories right next to this rep's territory. They felt and they heard from customers that they had previously managed that this person was really just having a bad impact. So for a couple of team members, I was more upfront and candid with them than, than maybe the whole team. Because there was also the reality that this person wasn't a fit, not entirely because of circumstances around them just not being a fit in the organization, but they had some personal stuff to deal with and just... Despite all my good efforts, they just weren't dealing with it appropriately. And so I, I knew that there was some personal stuff happening for this person that, that had to be addressed. And I was taking that to the side with them with, with the best intent to really make sure they put themselves in a good position, take away the job. That kind of stuff, obviously, I didn't share. But certainly the reality that this was a misfit and it was my decision, I took full ownership of it and was really upfront with a couple of those team members where you know they felt the impact the most. I think that honesty was what was refreshing for them. Now, obviously, I still had to deal with the situation. We had to sort of work around things for those five months. And like I said, I couldn't disclose everything. But I think the urgency of resolving it in the end, I think both good for us as a team and good for that person to find something else as part of their career, was ultimately a good reflection for the whole team that, look, I can make a mistake and and address it as quickly as possible for the benefit of everyone. That uh, eventually was meaningful to the rest of the team, but for those couple of people that it impacted the most, I was you know, certainly much more transparent about it than than the whole team.
0: There was a degree of transparency across the team, although that the level varied. Mm-hmm. I'm a believer in just telling the truth. When we've when we've dropped the ball, to use a sports yeah. analogy, that we own up to it. That does build credibility. I want to go back to the notion of fit for a second. Mm-hmm. I've had a conversation with at least one, maybe two of my guests about diversity in teams. Mm-hmm. And diversity crosses a range of dimensions, gender, race, LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. styles. There are lots of ways to be different. Yep. And
1: Mm
0: -hmm. hiring for fit can sometimes sound like I just want to make sure this person is like everybody else so they all get along (laughs) and therefore undermine you in a sense because you're not bringing difference of thought and difference of culture to bear on, on the work of the team. Mm -hmm. Do you still, to this day, try to hire thinking about both fit and diversity?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're touching on what's obviously a challenging topic, but critical. And I think you've mentioned some pieces, right? I think where leaders and companies get probably short-sighted is is defining diversity by any of those things you might have mentioned, right? Gender, age, sexuality, whatever it is. Right. And while that's certainly critical diverse groups will have typically diverse experiences to me it's it is about the diversity of thought which is most critical if you start with that in recognizing that diversity of thought tends to lead to better discussions avoiding the status quo that can stymie a team then yes I do think it's necessary absolutely necessary but you've got to be really mindful about how you go about it right and it's not a check the box exercise or it's a I'm going to force myself to find this in order to deliver some level of diversity. It's more nuanced than that. So it's, it's a challenging topic. But to answer your question, absolutely. Every time I hire, I try and understand how can we make the team as a whole more diverse in some form or fashion. I think that's what creates better thinking amongst the team. Like I said, challenges the status quo. And the reality is, for most businesses, their consumer base is diverse. Right. And that's what matters the most, people buying your products or your services and them having various experiences, then you have to deliver that to them. I don't think you can get there by obviously not being diverse. So it's necessary, but I certainly don't have all the answers in terms of getting it right all the time.
0: It's that tension between diversity and fit, because we need both. Mm -hmm. We need, we need, and by fit, it's maybe we need a new word for that, right? It isn't fit. It's some likelihood that this person will adapt to this organization. Right. Yep. And it's, it's, I don't know of any really super clear way to make that determination. It's why I guess we do things like uh, assessments and lengthy interviews uh, yeah.
1: with yeah. many individuals um, yeah, one, but, one day. Right. Right. Although, although I would say one thing this is where company values or team values become really important and not just the values that are on a wall, but the actionable values. Because if an organization has defined values, that are consistently lived, that is essentially what it takes to succeed here at at a high level. So if I go back to my time at Mars, the five principles, incredibly well ingrained, anywhere you go around the world, any Mars associate will tell you the five principles. And they're non-negotiable. When I was certainly hiring for external roles into Mars, that was the framework for me, was that was the fit. It had to be someone that could at least live those five values the norms that just weren't going to change within Mars. Things like an openness to collaborate with people, to certainly think mutually, right? What's good for us and what's good for the industry as a whole. That has to be a non-negotiable. If someone came in and was so selfish that it was all about them and delivering results for the business at all, all expenses, they could be diverse in so many fronts, but it clearly wasn't going to be a fit. So right. I do think values that are well-defined, well-understood, well-lived become a good framework for helping the fit question while still looking for diversity of thought.
0: Great point. I think clear value is a clear sense of the, of your purpose. Mm-hmm. Are these actions and words aligned with what we believe is the right thing to do? If not, then you have to act appropriately. We could spend hours on this one because that whole (laughs) idea of values, no, honestly, if I'm leading a team and I work for an organization that doesn't have a clearly articulated set of values, I was just talking to someone recently about their organization and and the the values that they have, and it was a laundry list. Mm. I came from an environment where, like you, the five principles were the topic of ongoing conversation. (laughs) They were used as a decision mechanism literally every day throughout the business. Not always interpreted in exactly the same way, but at least they're the grounds for solid debate. Mm -hmm. But this is an organization that said, we got values, we got values. But to your point, they weren't lived. Mm -hmm. The basis for decision-making, they were just something somebody had told the organization they needed to have. So they had them. But if I'm leading a team in an organization like that, what do I do? What's the proxy for that? What could a leader do when there aren't clearly articulated values to anchor his or her decisions. And
1: you're right. Mars is, is incredibly you know, well-defined in this space. Bridgestone, to their credit, have really strong values in places, well-articulated, I think well-understood for the most part, albeit very different than Mars. But if I was in a situation where it, it really wasn't well-defined or values were all over the place, I think like anything, there's always improvement opportunities. And as a, as a team leader... I do think you can really make a massive impact on culture more broadly just through your own team. You can be a role model for your team to live in, behave in ways that are very constructive and can have a flow on impact throughout the organization. If I go back to my time when I led that sales team at Mars, really well grounded context around us, but we still had a lot of dysfunction like any team or any any business what was probably true for our sales organization across the board at that time, and certainly my team, was that the norm for the team was to deliver results through hard work, mm-hmm. to basically do as many calls as you could do a day, put up as many displays as you could do, and really try and grow your business through just hard work. Now, that's certainly warranted to a, to a degree. One thing we did was kind of take a step back and assess what's really important here, Is it about the number of displays that we put up? Is it about the number of calls that we make? Or is it something more than that? And I think it took a while, but we we did get ourselves to a place where the team recognized that the end result was more important than the inputs in a lot of cases. So sales calls, display units being good examples where you can do them, but do they always deliver the great result at the end of the day? Or potentially, if you spend maybe more substantial time with fewer customers do things that might be a little bit more untraditional in the sense of the bigger negotiations or providing some category insights to retailers that may not have seen them, which can help them reorganize their entire pet food category, as an example, to drive more substantial growth, then you can tweak things and make a bigger difference. So that's one lived example. It's still in the context of a very healthy culture overall, but We did things differently that had a bit of a ripple effect. Other sales teams picked up on some of the behaviors. And ultimately, some of the metrics that we were being held accountable to as a sales organization were certainly being reflected as how critical really were they versus ultimately the outcome more so than the inputs, if that makes sense.
0: So it wasn't about how busy everybody was. It was about the quality of the effort they were making Mm -hmm. to get to the final results that really mattered. As a friend of mine, when I worked at IBM, used to say, activity does not equal results. Exactly. And we can feel exactly. good about working hard, but if it's not getting us more revenue, more sales, stronger, deeper relationships, is it really a value necessarily worth focusing on? Exactly. Yep. Well put. Did you have a boss who was really special and from whom you learned something about leading teams?
1: I've got to say, I, so I worked for a manager a couple of different times. His name's Malcolm Armstrong. He's a classic, classic Brit that spends time in Australia who claims to be Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, he's a good guy, though. (laughs) Other than that, he's a great guy. (laughs) Um, No, I I worked for Malcolm in Australia for a few years. So I worked for him in Nashville as well. So two different settings, same company. I'll forever be grateful to Malcolm for a few reasons. He is a leader that really empowers his team. And I know that's probably a buzzword. But when I say that, I say that genuinely in, in the context of him, because he would spend a long time to think through building his team. But in doing so, he trusted the people that he had on his team. When I say empowerment, I mean he would get stuff that would hit his desk. And typically speaking, probably the head of HR, yes, would, would be the one resolving it. But he felt the confidence in his team to push that back down to us to tackle and resolve. And so there were plenty of examples. One really stands out to me is... We were trying to launch our brand over in Japan, which, as you can imagine, is a big challenge. I was on the team, and Malcolm had obviously built enough trust in what I was capable of doing to say to me, hey, look, there's this big issue over in Japan. (laughs) I know you don't speak Japanese. I know you've never been to Japan, but I want you to take it on. It wasn't even a negotiation. What definitely stands out is the empowerment, the trust, but I think on top of that is He is a leader that gives not just honest feedback, but really constructive feedback. Mm. And so while it was still intimidating to take on some of those projects, like the Japan one, I felt that as I went into it, he always had my back. He would always give me constructive feedback along the way to get through it, even if I was struggling. That's just an incredible situation to be in where your boss really believes in you and they have your back along the way. They're not going to throw you out there to the wolves, despite the fact that what they are throwing you out there to is, is a real stretch and a real, real learning opportunity. So yeah. So so Malcolm stands out for, for a number of reasons, but that, that ultimately.
0: I'm really struck by the number of times you've talked about two occasions, and I'm sure mm-hmm. there must be more where people have said, Tim Creed, go do this thing you've never done before, whether it's <laughs> lead a field sales team or fix a problem in a culture, you know, nothing about it in a language you don't speak. Mm. Obviously you bring something to the table where people believe you have what we used to call learning agility, the ability yeah. to figure it out as you go and ask for help when you need it. Yeah. So good for you. That's pretty impressive.
1: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: If you had to turn around and offer a piece of wisdom to somebody who's taking their first people leadership job, mm-hmm. what one or two things would you say to this person?
1: I would say, number one, be real. Don't try and be someone you think you need to be or, or fit into the mold of, of other leaders that you may have seen, but really be yourself. And that's so much easier said than done. And it's going to take time. I, I would be hard-pressed to think of anyone stepping into that role to just automatically achieve that. Right. But I would give them that advice to to think that over those first 6-12 months when you really... Are likely to come across those challenges like like the ones I faced. That you just cannot try and become someone else. It'll take its toll, and it, and it won't work in the long run. So that's the first thing: is really be real, be yourself. Um, the second thing is is take it as a learning opportunity. What's the worst case scenario? I mean, sure there are bad bad scenarios, but it's all about people and behavior. Go in there and be incredibly humble and recognize that leadership is about the people you lead it's not about you it's all learning you're learning about the people that work for you you're hopefully giving them a chance to be better than what they are today and you're going to learn a lot about yourself along the way recognize it's a learning journey it's not that you have to perfect it straight away that was probably my biggest challenge is i've always been someone that sort of prided myself on getting it right quickly (laughs) Or doing well in school or competing and trying to win rugby games. And it's okay to lose sometimes. It's okay to, to not always be perfect. That would be my advice is it's, it's going to be tough. By the nature of the job, it's not about delivering the results. The people underneath you should be the ones delivering the results. It's a learning journey in terms of human behavior and bringing the best out of people. I
0: loved what you said. Remember, it's about them. It's not about you, but take care of yourself. Would your advice change at all in a world where we're still being forced to work apart so much or is it still basically those two same principles?
1: Same two principles. But I think you touch on a great point, which is the last 12 months have been tough for everyone because you lose the connection we were probably experiencing before the pandemic. And I think you're right about taking care of yourself. I've found myself and certainly people around me this last 12 months have struggled a lot with the fact that you lose community, you're spending time on Zoom calls all day long, and you need to really take care of yourself. Nothing changes, whether this was to linger on longer, we go to mm-hmm. some kind of hybrid working model, which is likely going forward, right. or if companies go back to the office. Either way, I think always be yourself and always take every day as a learning opportunity, and the rest sort of comes along with it.
0: Tim, thank you so much. I'm sure my listeners will be grateful to hear those simple messages from you. I
1: appreciate it. Thanks, Carlos.
0: To my listeners, I look forward to having you with me again on the next episode of Teaming with Ideas. In the meantime, take care of yourselves.
1: Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerick, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com questions click on the contact carlos button and we'll answer promptly to be interviewed on the teaming with ideas podcast visit carlosvdepena.com forward slash podcast contact and complete the questionnaire thanks again for listening and keep on teaming with ideas